Okay, Parashat Emor. How many of you got the email from Harry that we're doing this parasha? Everybody? Okay, did everybody do the reading? Okay, okay, I understand. But, but it's helpful to do the readings because then at least you're somewhat familiar with them. And so um, it's impossible to read through chapters 21 to 24 because there's too much in it. But within that, on the front page of your outline, you'll see where I'm trying to drive this. And so in Leviticus, it's the book that is uh, not actually for the Levites, but for the priest. So it's, it's a badly named book, and we said that when we dealt with Vayikra, with the beginning of this book. And so these laws are here specifically now for the priest, and these are the laws for the holy people. And while Israel generically are the holy people, the priests are then even more so. And within the priest, there is one particular priest that is even more holy, and that is the Gon Gadol, the, the high priest. And so some of these laws are about him. And so that's why chapter 21 starts off with that holiness aspect of it, and who's disqualified from serving as a priest. And so while they were still technically a priest, they no longer were allowed to serve as a priest. In the next chapter, chapter 22, it then talks about the sacrifices. And in verse 2, it says then, Tell Aaron and his sons to be careful with these holy gifts. And so these are holy sacrifices. These are not just ordinary things. These are set apart. And so there needs to be a safeguarding and the sanctity of the offering. And they were not allowed to offer anything that is blemished to the Lord. And that comes back in the book of Nehemiah as well, where they offer to the governor things that are uh, blemished, and he refuses them. And in chapter 23, it then deals with the holy seasons. And this is the key chapter, I believe, in this parasha. Now, I've talked about the feasts generically here before, but I will go through them again because this is such a key chapter that I want you to really understand this. The Lord spoke again to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, These are the Lord's appointments with you. Now, most of the time it'll say appointed times, but these are really appointments with God. And so when God makes an appointment, you can be sure that he will come. Because it is God himself who said that he would come. And then he sets out in the general introduction that there is a weekly thing. And that is the Shabbat or the Sabbath. And what are they to do? They are to completely rest. Don't do any work. And stay in all your dwellings. So all of you, except for Harry and Zelda, actually... Sabbath breakers. <laughs> because we didn't stay at home, did we? I didn't drive. 
That makes no difference. Are you, are you at home? Then you're a Sabbath breaker. And that's a terrible thing if we had lived under the law of Moses. Because then we would all be... Put to death. Exactly. But thank God for the grace that we have. And so in that sense, we are remembering with this Sabbath that he set a time apart for that. And that ultimately he is our Sabbath rest. And that from the book of Hebrews we know that we have to press into that. And that is significant for us that we don't just see it as a time but actually as a person as well in whom we rest. And in the Lord we have all the rest that we need. And then he deals with the holy seasons in particular. Sometimes we call them the feast but not all of them are feast. Some of them are actually fast and so feast is really not a good term the the feast of israel or the feast of the lord we really should call them the holy seasons or the appointed times Moed. yeah and so the first one is passover and passover technically is only one day but we shall celebrate it for seven mm. except that we merge the next one within this the feast of unleavened bread which is seven days is merged with passover and we see it as one feast and so within the new testament too when you read through mark it'll say it's the feast of uh, unleavened bread and he doesn't say passover and he actually uses the correct term but most of them just say it's the passover and just referring to it in a generic sense but because Mark is writing to Romans, he wants to make sure that they understand. And because they don't have that Jewish background, he explains it. Then there's the first fruits. And the first fruits is on the first day after the Sabbath. Now the first day after the Sabbath is? Sunday. Sunday. First day, the Sunday, yeah. Or Saturday evening. Yeah. Saturday night, yeah. Saturday night, Sunday. And so that would be the first day of the week. It's followed then by the Feast of Weeks. Shavuot, Pentecost. It's got a, quite a few names. Which is now the end of the month. At the end of the month, in a few days. Yeah. yeah. Um, and... In verse 22, verse 23, 22, Leviticus 23, verse 22, when you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleanings of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy, for the alien. I am the Lord your God. Now that last phrase, I always like to explain it in this way, that God sometimes put a stick behind the door. Now he didn't need to tell the children of Israel over and over again that he is the Lord their God. They knew that. But he's saying, I want you to remember this law in particular because you may rejoice a lot of the time, but I also want you to leave the corners of your field and remember that I'm the Lord your God. And if you don't do this, I'll be your daddy standing behind the door with a stick. And that's a bit of an odd reference, verse 22, because what does that have to do with the feast? The fact that he, that he was going to reprimand you if you don't 
Yeah, but the, like this whole chapter is about feast, holy seasons, appointed times. Because God will provide everything you need so that you can give Him the appropriate tithe. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be mean and grab it all from every particle in the field. Mm, yeah, but how is that linked to the feast, to so a particular to come, feast? You have to come and bring offerings. That's true, but even without the feast, I would have to do that. But I hear the connection, I like it. Making sure that everyone can, can partake of the moed. Doesn't matter whether yeah, you are rich or that, poor. That fits too. God provides but, in abundance for us. We should provide in abundance for others. Yeah, fits too. But can you see that it's an odd reference? The whole chapter, every verse is about the feast. Or about holy seasons, appointed times. But this is about agriculture. Everything is holy. Sorry? Everything, Everything is holy. Everything yeah. is holy. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, it fits, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain it in a minute. But I just want you to see that when you read through a chapter, sometimes this is jarring almost when you look at the chapter. This is then followed by Yom Truad. We call it the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, Feast of Trumpets. Um, not sure where the word... It's a holy convocation where they blow the trumpet or the shofar. That would be a better way to present this. Um, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, it's also called. So it's got various names. But Yom Truah would be the more literal, the day of the blowing of the trumpet. This is then followed by the Day of Atonement. And that's clearly not a feast. It's the time for... An, an atonement, an atonement with God, where an atonement is made on our behalf before the Lord your God. And in verse 29, if any person who will not humble himself on this same day, he shall be cut off from his people. So that would be a good reference to remember that these are not feasts, but holy seasons. This is then followed by the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Tabernacles is seven days. Except that in verse 36, it then suddenly says, and on the eighth day, it is as if God cannot count. This feast has seven days. Oh, and by the way, on the eighth day. Samuel beginning. Yeah, it, it's kind of something different. He's adding something to this. Now, because these are appointments that God has in time with the nation of Israel, we want to understand what that means then. And so Passover. Oh, yeah. You're going to indicate which ones of these are fast fastings as well. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Passover. One Corinthians five verse seven. Hmm. For Messiah is our Passover. He is that key reference, and he is set apart as that lamb. And John already talked about that in John chapter 1. Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And John linked the concept of the lamb with the Exodus 12 lamb, the Isaiah 53 lamb. Mm -hmm. And so Paul here in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 clearly states that he is. And just as the Passover lamb said, the nation of Israel apart, or the people of Israel apart, 
so too we who are in Messiah have been set apart. But Paul, in every feast, Jesus has done already, and the fourth one is coming, he's still going to do it. So let me, go, let me go through them with you. Okay. So unleavened bread, Leviticus 23, 6. Messiah is the only one who is sinless. And the angel came to Mary and said, the holy one that is within you, the holy thing, if you have a King James, I think it says the holy thing that is within you. And so he is the holy one, the one that is totally sinless. And Jesus himself even said that he was the bread of life, John 6.51. And so he is the unleavened bread of Passover. First fruits points to Messiah too, in that he is the first fruits of the resurrection. One Corinthians fifteen verse twenty. He's the first fruits from the dead. And just as he has died, so too most of us will die. And when we die, we too will rise with him. And as he is the first fruits of this, we will we know and we can trust that we too will be raised. The first fruits was offered by the people, the, by the priests who lived in the surrounding area of Jerusalem, and they would take the, the grain up, the barley grain up to the temple and offer it to the Lord as a first fruits, as a thanksgiving offering. The feast of weeks or Pentecost occurred 50 days, and during those 50 days we count those sheaves that were brought into the temple. 50 sheaves were brought in, one on each day. So the 50 days that occur in between are the counting of the Omar. And at this point, 50 days after unleavened bread, the Feast of Pentecost, or weeks, or Shavuot happens. And we remember on that day that 3,000 Jewish people responded to the Gospel at once. And we see that in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. At this point, God establishes a new body, the body of Messiah or the church. And the body of Messiah is significant because it too reminded us of the story with Israel in that Israel too was formed out of a people into a nation on this day. Because on this day, the Jewish people remember the giving of the law. And when the law was given to the people, they too became, out of all the people's groups, the tribes, one nation. So, uh, we're going back to Exodus. That was when Moses gave them, the Lord law. gave the law to Moses. To Moses. To them. Yeah. So that's what they're celebrating. And that's what they're celebrating. Okay, end of the month. Coming from the tribes to one nation. Mm. Yeah. So that's why said is so important here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and the law was given to Moses, and sadly, three thousand people perished at the bottom of the mountain. <laughs> that's absolutely true. That is sad event. Mm. And so it's a, it's a real counterbalance between the two stories. They they really come together at that point. Mm. It's been my experience being sure and outside of sure. Why do the rabbis not teach about that? 
because technically it didn't happen on that day. When you, when you count the days, it's actually on a slightly different day. No, what um, Louise referred to. Because we, we never teach any of the negative stories. <laughs> Most religious books, when you read them, they only highlight the positive things. I mean, you read about the, the Greek, the heroes of the faith, but you never read about the downtrodden or the bad. But when you read through the Bible, there are lots of stories. Uh, I mean, the end of Judges, it is hard rendering. The Bible is, is brutally honest in that sense. But when we tell the Bible, we do a, a sanctified version of it. And we remove some of the things that we don't like. I, and that I, happens in synagogue and that happens in church. I had three Israelis at my house. And I've got a lot of the um, Tanakh dramatized. If you can get it, anyone, time life. They've done really brilliant They've gone to Mishnah and Talmud and everything to make these, so it's followed chapter by chapter, you know, during the Pasha. Anyway, so they're watching this, and as he comes down the mountain, they grind the stuff and then commit the sword, and they're going, Maze! And they're going, stop, stop, what is this? And I'm going, haven't you ever read this before? And they're going, no. No. So I quickly ran and got my Tanakh, and I said, he there. He starts to read, and he goes, like this, and he goes, so the Muslims have got it right then, and I'm like, no, no. <laughs> Anyway, no. let me work through this, otherwise yeah, we, we are going to be in trouble. Anyway, when the body of Messiah is established in Acts 2, they are already commissioned. And what is their commission? To look onto the harvest, to look into the fields, because the harvest is ripe. And now that verse, verse 22 in Leviticus 23, makes sense, because now that that body is established, what are they to do? Reap the harvest of your land. Mm -hmm. And that is our ministry, that is our gospel ministry. Can you repeat that? Please? What do you mean? What you do, you, that statement you just that's the connecting. Oh, just get the audio recorded. I wasn't. <laughs> so in verse twenty-two, yes, what we see that agricultural reference makes sense in the light of the New Testament, where we have Yeshua saying, "Look onto the fields; they are already ripe unto harvest," mm -hmm. and He's saying to them, "Yes, you can celebrate. These are the things that will happen. And once I've established mm -hmm. my body, my body is to do." Winning of souls or gospel ministry, however you want to put that within that context of Yeshua. Then the Feast of Trumpets, and you may differ with me over here, and if you do, that's okay. Um, we'll uh, see and wait, and when we go up, I'll tell you that you were wrong or I was wrong. The Feast of Trumpets points to the rapture of the body of Messiah. The rapture is associated with the blowing of the shofar, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, and 1 Corinthians 15, 52, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. And some people like to argue and say, oh, but it says the last trump, and the last trump doesn't get sounded till the book of Revelation, but the book of Revelation isn't written yet. John is still to write that in another... 40 years, no, 30 years later. So 
Revelation hasn't been written, so Paul is writing from his own historical background, his own context, social background, and he's saying, hey, when we go to shul, when we go to the synagogue, what do we do on the Feast of Trumpets, on the day of... We blow the shofar. And we blow it how many times? 100. 100 times. And the last one is called? The Gadol. Yeah. Tekiya Gadola, the great trump. And it's the final trump that is sounded. And that is what Paul um, is referring to. And once the body of Messiah is taken out, the Day of Atonement would be the next holy season. And it's the time when Israel traditionally fasts refrains from wearing leather, having sexual relationships, or anoint themselves with perfume. And so they are in, in a state where they are mourning, repenting, turning inwardly, and asking God to explain what happened and how to be reconciled to him. But what they need to do is look upon him whom they have pierced, because who is it that they have pierced? Sure. The hymn that is referred to in the book of Zechariah is actually the Lord himself, Zechariah 12.10. And at that point, all Israel will acknowledge their sins and come together. And it is at that point that God will turn ungodliness away from Jacob and the new covenant will be fully inaugurated, Jeremiah 31, 31-34. And the effect the effect will be Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. But it is not until that point that that happens. This is then followed by the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, in which we remember the journeyings in the wilderness. And for those of you who like fashions, it was a terrible time because for 40 years our clothes didn't wear out. And those of you who don't like fashions and you don't care what you wear, it was a great time. It was every day you had the same clothes on. And we remember that God tabernacled with us in the wilderness. And that's the whole thing in the book of Exodus. We had those long extended chapters about the tabernacle. God would tabernacle with us. And that's how John 2 starts off his gospel. That Messiah tabernacled and dwelt with us. And John even uses the word skene, which is not a Greek word at all, but it's a loan word from Hebrew, from Shekhinah, Shekhinah, or Shekhinah, it's often pronounced. And it's the glory of God that dwelt visibly amongst us. Which verse are you quoting there? I'm not quoting any verse. It's John, it's, oh, John chapter 1, uh, 1 to 16, I think. Yeah. Isn't it? I think so, but I'll leave you. I'll leave it for you to check up on me. Um, you know, it's it's on the tape till I can come back. It, to you. It's it's on no tape. It's on that MP3 thing, but that's okay. And so this at this point that we can see that the Messiah would reign over the restored tabernacle of David, and he would reign in particular through Yeshua himself, who would reign in Jerusalem. And then there's the final the eighth day so what is the eighth day then well if you look at this yeah it's a new beginning that's right so when you look at this calendar you saw that the first ones were fulfilled by messiah then he established his body and the body was told to go out and look into the fields and work in the fields then he would come for his body he would cause his spirit to fall upon Israel. They would repent, day of atonement, 
then he would dwell with his people. So that would be the kingdom, the messianic kingdom. Mm. So then what happens after the messianic kingdom? Eternity. Eternity to come, yeah. So the eighth day is that new beginning, mm. and it's the mm. eternity to come. I have a question. Um, as we saw before, um, about Passover and all that, our Lord just has accomplished all, all that. How do you think that is going to be what Paul says in Christopher in chapter 5 that the last trumpet? Uh, are we going to hear that trumpet? Is the world is going to hear the trumpet? As the Christian, are we going to be able to hear when he... As believers, we're definitely going to hear. I have no doubt about that, because even the dead in Messiah will rise, so they must hear. There, there must be a signal. And so when you read through the chapter, it is God himself who tells Messiah, who gives the command to the angel, and it is a military command, and then uh, the trumpet is blown. And so does the military command, in a sense, come up. And you see that in the book of Revelation, that he says, come up here. And at that point, the shofar is blown in the same sense as in the battle. It said, rally around me. And so we then rally around him. Those that are believers and the dead will rise first. Then we who are alive, who remain, are caught up with them. So we follow shortly after. Yes. And so that I, I suspect that it will be an audible thing. Yes. What a wonderful thing, isn't it? <laughs> it, it is a great thing, as far as I'm concerned. Can I ask a question, please? You said that the, uh, the, they were, the people were told not to harvest the corners. Mm -hmm. And then you said that Jesus said to go out and, and, and reap the harvest. Is, is, are the corners that are not uh, harvested a metaphor for yes. those who will not be saved? Um... Yes, no. You'll find the reference coming back also in the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, it uses the word kanafecha, and, and, and it doesn't use the word for, and it might be the same here, but I would need to look it up. And the word for corner there is the word for wing, or the extremity of the wing. And we then see a word play happening within the scriptures from that moment on. Because the Jewish people on their Corners of their four square garments had to wear on the wings, on the corners, those fringes. Mm -hmm. And the only people in, back in Egypt who were allowed to wear fringes were priests and pharaoh family. So priests and kings. Mm -hmm. And so that then comes back. And so he makes that play here within the word. And so in the one sense, it is for the poor and the orphan, but that is who we are. Mm -hmm. Because we are the poor. <laughs> We are the poor in spirit. Mm. When you read through the book of Ruth, she says, spread the yes. corner, the, the wing of your garment over me, be my kinsman redeemer. King Saul went into the cave and he relieved himself and David cut off the hem of his garment, the wing of his garment. And so he used that same term and he says, the kingdom is now established with you. And so it's that transference of kingdom. 
Elijah had that same aspect in terms of the mantle that would fall upon him. So there's a prophetic element to it. And in Malachi chapter 4, it is with healing in his wings that he would come. So the woman who had the issue of blood in the book of Luke, who uh, sneaks up behind Yeshua and touches him, says in one sense, you are my king, my priest, my prophet, my kinsman, redeemer, my healer. And that word is being used here for the corner of your field. And so in that sense, it is the corner that is left out within a sense in a prophetic aspect yeah, in the sense of this is both for them but also for us mm -hmm. this is where God wants us to work because most people in the world will not want to hear mm. but work among the poor mm. right, yeah. but yeah. look it's just a thought and I'll leave it with you mm. thank, thank you, very you. Much. that was a super summary Paul Thanks. I don't know anyway in Leviticus 4 24 sorry we then have the laws of the tabernacle in the terms of the menorah and the menorah is a modern symbol for the state of Israel but biblically speaking this is not true the menorah is not a symbol for Israel sorry it was in the temple it was in the tabernacle first then later on the temple there was one in the tabernacle and Solomon says I can do better than that let me build 10 and he extends it slightly grandiosity I think is the word not a good thing he didn't need to do that uh, but there is a reason why it's not a sign for Israel or a symbol of Israel do you know what it's a symbol of? yes in Revelation chapter 2 the seven churches absolutely right seven churches it's a sign for the believers Yeshua walks amongst the lampstands and he says that he has the right to remove them now the oil would be a symbol of the Holy Spirit but the lampstand itself is a sign for the body of Messiah but within this chapter there are two aspects there is both the menorah, the candelabra, but also the table of showbread, the showbread itself. And how many pieces of showbread were there? Twelve. Verse six, you shall put them in two rows, six to a row, on a pure gold table before the Lord. And twelve is a common symbol for? The tribes, the twelve tribes of Israel. So here we see the body of Messiah and the twelve tribes of Israel, the body of Israel, coming together before the Lord. And when you think about the tabernacle, what is the next thing in this room? What is the, in this in this space? Holy of holy, yes. No, no, not the holy of holies. The holy place. The holy before. place. Before, yeah, yeah, before, yeah. Sorry. So you have the front door. You open the front door. The priest went in the holy place, and were kings and priests. And That's right. So on the one hand, you see the table of showbread. On the other hand, you see the menorah. The menorah. Okay. What do you see in front of you? Congregation. No, the congregation is behind you. The incense. The incense. The altar of incense. And what is incense a symbol of? Prayer. 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 
May my prayer be like incense. Also in the book of Revelation, it comes back. It goes through everything. Yeah, and so this, the smell of the incense actually wafts through everything. the kafa, the veil. And therefore, within the book of Hebrews, we see that the book of Hebrews says, this actually is inside the Holy of Holies. It, not that the item is, but the worship of it, or the, the, the prayers go through to the Holy of Holies. Okay, so these are now the holy items that are in the tabernacle. Then he comes to the last thing, that's the blasphemer. And the blasphemer is one who defames the name of God. Defames the name of God. He no longer uh, sanctifies Kiddush HaShem, the Hebrew, or sanctifies the name of God. Now, in the Jewish community, we sometimes misuse that, sadly. But sanctifying or blaspheming the name of God must be with the name of God itself. And so, the son of an Israelite woman, in verse 11, who then blasphemes the name, and it says, Hashem, and cursed, so they brought him to Moses. And then they say, what should happen to him? And he gets stoned because once you blaspheme the Holy One, you die. And that really is where this chapter really should end. Now the, the chapter doesn't quite end there. There's then a penalty for hurting somebody else uh, within the end. Uh, tooth for tooth, eye for an eye, that penalty of sin. But that's the, the weekly parasha in a nutshell. This is why the guys got so worked up with the Yeshua referring to himself, or, you know, and also Stephen, why he was stunned, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so certainly Yeshua, they, they wanted to kill Yeshua because he claimed to be equal to God. Mm. So he's blaspheming and, and, against And sometimes world. you hear uh, people say, oh, he never claimed to be God. But from a Jewish perspective, he did it often. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. More than and, often. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Sorry to interrupt. Would that be because of a terminology of Hebrew that he would use? In his, in his the, the Father and I are one. Yeah. And the word for one, that would be Echad. The Father and I are what? Hero mm -hmm. Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Mm -hmm. Well, if I'm one with God, then I am people. God. We are one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That would be... If he wasn't God himself, that would be absolute blasphemy. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. That's just one of them. Mm. Anyway, the testimony of Yeshua, because we're running out of time, I see. Mm. On becoming a living sacrifice and set apart priesthood, let's read a few verses. And, um, you've got lots of time, of <laughs> no, yeah. no, you have lots of time. But we agreed to a half an hour, and I'm at 35 minutes now. But well, that thing goes fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you heard it, people. You heard it. <laughs> and so, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. And I'll ask somebody to read them out. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. Anybody? Uh, 
Um, uh, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we are living sacrifices, and what is it that we need to do? Change our thinking from stinking thinking to holy thinking. Mm. It's mm. a terrible way to put it, isn't it? But that's true, though. That's what we need to do. We need to change how we approach this whole thing, because God is holy. Once we've done that, Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, and he's made us to be a kingdom, a priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Then you are set apart. Then, at that point, when you've become that living sacrifice, and that's something that we work on daily. Daily we need to change our thinking. And we can do that not because we are so great, but the book of Hebrews tells us that Yeshua is the holy and perfect high priest. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. Hebrews 7, verse 26. Anybody? He's the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has not been set apart from sinners and he has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. He has now been set apart from sinners. Yeah. And so we have that sympathetic high priest that is making intercession for us, but he is holy and righteous and perfect. And he is the one who makes that exchange for us. On the Lord's Feast and prophetic foreshadowing, Colossians 2 verses 16 to 17 Colossians 2 verses 16 to 17 Anybody? So don't let anyone pass judgment on you in connection with eating and drinking or in regard to a Jewish festival or Rosh Chodesh or Shabbat these are these are a shadow of the things that are coming but the body is of the Messiah verse 18 as well no that'll that'll do you see these are foreshadowings of Messiah and so we do need to understand them. We do need to know them. But whether you keep them or not, whether you eat kosher or not, we don't pass any judgments. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 8, on the other hand, says, Therefore let us celebrate the feast. So we have freedom, absolute freedom, to keep it or not, to eat kosher or not. But let no man pass Judgment, whether you do or you don't. Mm -hmm. But whatever you do, don't let it be with malice mm -hmm. or with the old leaven, with wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I think it's a really important point for us in what we're doing here because there's so many people 
uh, living right here, having Shabbat as we sit here ourselves, um, that would find this very awkward for us not having kosher food and would not join us because we're not kosher. Let's not be critical, which is really the point that's been made here. That's the point. That's what they would like to have. If we're invited there, and we have been, we would do as they do. The fact that they will not come here because of that is their decision. It's not something for us to be critical. Yeshua, we sung about this, is the light of the world. He is the true light from whom all light is drawn. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 4 and 9. And John eight twelve. Somebody said 8.12? Yeah. And Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Hmm. On the saints who are now believing a living menorahs, living candelabras for the Lord, Revelation 2.1 would be that key reference. And we already alluded to that. Two, one. And that's just one of them. The angel of the church in Ephesus writes these things, says, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Yeshua walks amongst us. We are a light to the world. He's called us. And so, what is it that we do? If we knew that the Holy One was here, would we bring holy sacrifices? Would we act holy? Would we live more holy? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 says, For you were formerly darkness but now you are light in the Lord walk as children of the light for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord Ephesians 5 verses 8 to 10 now Yeshua also taught on that law of retribution an eye for an eye remember that? Mm -hmm. That's an uncomfortable thing for us because all of us had a black eye at one stage or another. Not me, of course, but everybody else did. Okay, me too. So do you therefore then punch somebody else in the eye? How, how do we deal with that? Yeshua responds in, in one way with Exodus 23 verses 4 to 5. So let's go to Exodus 23, 4 to 5 first. Mm 
off with his donkey going astray, you should surely bring it back to him again. You see, the donkey is one who hates you, lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping him, you shall surely help him with it. Even your enemy, you gotta help. <coughs> that was already there, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It wasn't a, a new thing that Yeshua introduced, it was something that already was there. Luke chapter 6, verses 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Paul, uh, stand stand there for a second because this is probably one of the most difficult things for for me. I don't know if it applies to any of you. Because he's not just saying love your enemy. He's saying so much more. Respect you. You gotta help them. Help them. You know, be the good Samaritan. I heard in a, a pastor saying that uh, we hear someone break his home and um, is going to hurt his wife or his kids, he will shoot him. Mm. So how is that with the enemy? So within the story of Luke, Luke chapter 6, verse 27. These are the enemies that have come up against him. And within the context, he's talking about the enemies of the faith. So if somebody comes to you on the basis of that, on the basis of faith, you cannot resist him. That's what he's saying. But if somebody comes into your house and punches you up, you have the right to respond. There are two different laws here at, at play. One is um, the law of the individual. If someone hits me, I turn the other cheek. Mm-hmm. If someone touches my wife, they better look out. Because that, I'm, I've yeah. been given responsibility, responsibility for, her, yeah. for my children, mm-hmm. for those who are under my care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I have to protect them to the death. So if they abuse you on the basis of faith, yep. you've got to turn the other cheek. Yeah. But if they take your wife, that's not on the basis of faith. No. At that point, or you're, you're allowed to respond. Yeah. You God see that? made me responsible yeah. for... That's for right, yeah. yeah. Or your property. Yeah. You know. mm. According to the in the, in the crimes of the Lord, mm-hmm. um, the, one of the guys there was And then after the war, she saw this guy who was so cruel. And she and the guy going through eternity whether to shake her hand or not, but she chose to forgive her. Mm. That was in Tramp for the Lord. Yeah, Tramp for the Lord, Cory Tamboom, and it's a wonderful story. If you don't know the story, I highly recommend it. Can I, can I add to what I just said? That, that it's, that's the problem we have um, with the Ten Commandments, or the Commandments. And, 
and uh, the, the command of Jesus to turn the other cheek, etc. One, one was given as a rule for the nation. If people do these crimes, this is what they should suffer. But you as individuals, you mm. shouldn't do that and take the law into your own hands. Mm. You should turn the other cheek or walk the extra mile or give your coat cloak as well as your coat and so on. Because there are two different laws at, at play here. Mm. One is a law given by the nation to stop anarchy. And the other one is given for you as a person so that you can be submissive to God and love your enemy and love your neighbour. And we can't... This is... Sorry, I'm not giving that offence to people now. Um, so so let, let's do that afterwards. Spirit, then. <laughs> nominal Christians without the Spirit have then made this a law. They've made this a law. So it means that women should be battered by their husbands because they should not retaliate. This is what... Paul was saying, use it in context. It is in context of your faith. It's not in context of just any kind of violence. Yeah, yeah correct. Yeah. Okay, the last one. The Do not be a respecter of persons, although Messiah had in the Lord clearly made a difference between all the people of the world and the nation of Israel, and within the nation of Israel, the tribe of Levi, and within the tribe of Levi, the family of Aaron, and then the high priest himself, we are actually told not to be a respecter of persons. And James chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, has that wonderful illustration. If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, mm -hmm. dressed in fine clothes, and there's a poor man in dirty clothes, which one? Who do you pay attention to? Mm -hmm. So that's something to remember. In... Sorry, James. James chapter 2, yep. verses 1 to 9. And that's repeated in 1 Peter 1, verse 17. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Honor all people and honor the king. There is no distinction there. And then finally, there's a call to holiness in a generic sense, and that's 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 17. 1 Peter 1, verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. Also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And so God has called us to holiness. And he set us apart. Within times, within seasons, within objects, within people. And yet there is only one that is truly holy. And that's who we should bow down before and worship. And we got to be like him. Mm. Be holy.